Welcome to The Rock's podcast for our midweek study through Galatians. False teachers were throwing believers into confusion by perverting the gospel. They taught that salvation depended on our own good works. So the Apostle Paul must remind them that salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, and to stand firm in their freedom. Now let's join Pastor Ross in our verse-by-verse study through this most liberating letter. Okay, it's time to get started, and as I said, we are going to be Finishing up Galatians chapter 6, I'm excited about that. Uh, There's always some good stuff right at the end. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, we look to you to renew our minds through the power of your word, through the power of the Holy Spirit who's here, resides in our hearts for these very things, to remind us all about Jesus and to convict us of our sins, to to instruct us in wisdom and to soften our hearts so that we can be changed by the power of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So tonight, as I've been saying, we finish up the book of Galatians. Paul is concluding his six-chapter letter with some very important truths crucial for these first-century believers who are being led astray by these false teachers. And false teaching has always been a problem from the dawn of time with God's people. And in this case, they're pushing a religion of legalism. They're saying it's necessary to become Jewish. On top of your Christian conversion to Christ, you will have to keep Old Testament rituals and regulations as we've been learning week by week here in order to be saved, these Gentile converts. Can you imagine? And Paul really says, nonsense. Old Testament rituals and regulations really are fulfilled in Christ and that salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. It's about this new life. When we believe the gospel, when we put our trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in and makes us new gives us this uh, new life. Jesus called being born again. We're reconciled to God. And so now it's not about a religion of do's and don'ts. It's about a relationship with the living God, which Paul is telling the Galatians, he describes it this way, to walk in the spirit. It's this relationship day in and day out in our hearts and in our minds with our Father. This is something uh, that has nothing to do with legalism. So legalism has a nice feeling with self-imposed disciplines, you know. It strokes your ego to say, well, I don't do this and I do this and the kinds of dietary restrictions or observing special days and rituals and all of that. But the Bible says that those kinds of things don't have any value, no spiritual benefit whatsoever. And so the bottom line is nothing in our hands we bring simply to the cross we cling. And so the only goodness and discipline that counts for anything really is the consequence of our putting our faith in in Christ. And then the Holy Spirit comes in who's good And as we yield to God, his goodness 
His, uh, the fruit of the Holy Spirit comes out and helps us to obey him. That's the only good that counts for anything is the goodness that comes from the Holy Spirit as we yield our lives to him. So God is looking for Christ's likeness, right? Legalism can't deliver that. You can't become more like Christ because you don't eat pork or, or you don't go to this place or you, you keep the Sabbath. Uh, none of that is going to turn you into, um, transform you into a person who acts like Jesus, the Son of God. And so Galatians 6, for context, picks uh, where we pick up. It began in the first five verses to define what Christian living is all about. He said that we are to be spirit-filled, to to be in step, to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. And what that looks like, a spiritual Christian is somebody who has love in their hearts, who looks out for one another and fulfills the law of Christ, which is to love one another with Christ's kind of love. So the first five verses, we pick up at six, so the first five verses were all about this love manifesting in our lives as we are our brothers and sisters' keepers. We, we try to restore people who have maybe a fall from grace, who are caught in a sin. Last week, we talked about carrying each other's burdens, lightening people's loads, staying humble, and, and making room in our hearts to, to be other-centered and to live for God. And so really the spiritual believer as opposed to a carnal believer, a mature Christian as opposed to an immature Christian, is someone who's always looking to redeem the situation or the person, always looking to make peace, always looking to quell and to calm a problem, always looking to uh, bring unity, always looking to strengthen, no matter the situation, no matter where you find yourself. These are, these are the characteristics of uh, maturity of a spiritual Christian. And now he's going to pick up on the same theme of walking with the Spirit, keeping in step with him, being mature in verse 6. Now there are two paragraphs to go, and here's the first one along the same theme now. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Holy Spirit from the Holy Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at a proper time, at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So let's take a look at that. Note takers. A spiritual Christian understands the law of sowing and reaping, that our behavior has consequences, good and bad. So in this context, it begins with the with the idea of investing our lives in the Lord's work. So more specifically, this paragraph talks about making sure the pastor is provided for. So uh, speaking of bearing each other's burdens, which was one through five, now he's in six, and he's saying, speaking of bearing burdens, let's start in the church and with those who serve the church and this is what he's talking about. So he's saying, uh, uh, 
that we need to take care of our pastors. Now, passages like this in verse 6, and they're not alone, they're frequent in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is just a whole chapter on how ministry is designed by God to function financially, and that is through the giving of God's people. And so 1 Corinthians 9 really is um, the, the proof text for how ministry operates financially and all of that. Um, and so it's an important subject, and here's the paragraph, so we're going to spend a little bit of time on verse 6 and the context of the paragraph. Now, Martin Luther said uh, there in the 16th century, he's the German reformer, of course, he said these passages, verse 6, are all meant to benefit us ministers. I must say I do not find much pleasure in explaining these verses. I am made to appear as if I am speaking for my own benefit. Martin Luther in the 1600s there. Now, 1500s, I should say. So be that as it may, it's the word of God and the pastor's the one who is responsible to exposit the word of God for the people of God. And it it doesn't uh, matter what the subject matter is. As awkward as some things are, it just has to be done. It's more than necessary. So in light, especially this subject, in light of the satanic inspiration that um, is, has attacked a lot of local churches and Christianity at large. In other words, there are false teachers who rail against the local church and say that everything we're doing is not biblical, from, from the idea of meeting in a building to having a budget to paying pastors. That's one of the underlines there, that, that church staff should be paid, this kind of thing. And so modern heretics write books about these kinds of things and criticize the local church on every imaginable level. So... Uh, It's important to understand God's design, how ministry is supposed to operate, how we're supposed to go into all the world and and preach the gospel to every creature. That takes money. It doesn't get done without money. And nothing really can happen in ministry. Of course, the obvious through prayer. But once those prayers need to be realized, the funds need to be in the account or it's just not going to happen. And so God has designed a way, and we're going to talk about that here. Now, notice here in verse 6 that the primary function of a pastor is that he instructs in the word of God. That's a pastor's number one job responsibility. You can name a dozen things a pastor should do. But number one, according to the Bible, is to instruct people in the word of God. A man cannot live by bread alone, but they... We live on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, and nobody can get saved unless there's a preacher. Romans chapter 10 says this is important. So God gifted the church, Ephesians chapter 4, with men he called poimen, which is the Greek word for pastor, which literally means feeder, the one who feeds. When Jesus was asking Peter, You know, uh, do you love me? The evidence of your love for me, Peter, will be that you will feed my sheep. So a pastor may be distracted by all kinds of things. In fact, in 
Acts chapter 6, when the church was a baby, you know, the pastor was doing all kinds of things and found that the preaching of the word was being diminished. And so they came up with this idea by the Holy Spirit to have deacons. Deacons handled the administrative issues in the church so that the pastor could, quote, give himself to the word and to prayer. Now, if a pastor has to give himself over to big chunks of time to prepare the word, to pray, and to have spiritual obligation to bring forth the word of God, then he can't be doing other things. So the scriptures here are going to say, because God calls them to this vocation to spend so much time working, rendering a service for God and the people of God that that person needs to be compensated so they can do their job. And I've got a couple scriptures that go along these uh, this way here. I'm always looking for this. I found it. Let the elders at work can mean pastors who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scriptures say, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. And then summing it all up in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, in the same way the Lord's commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. That should just be plain enough as it is. And so uh, let me talk to you about the ox quotation there in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Paul is quoting from that book and he's going to say, yes, God cares in the law uh, in a humanitarian sense about animals. And here's what they would do. Uh, the, The ox, they would load the ox up and they put the, 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 the kernels, the wheat, on the threshing floor. And the weight of the animal would go around and around in circles, sometimes with millstones, sometimes just under its hooves, and just pounding and pounding and pounding and pounding until the husk and the kernel were separated and they was useful to make bread and to eat. And what they would do is to, the, the ox would get hungry because the ox is, is working and laboring. And so what they would do is, oh, no, 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 no. Don't you be eating our profits down there. You know, so while the ox is working and wants to stop and feed itself, they would muzzle it. So Paul would say, and, and they would love to borrow other guys' oxen. And then they would love to muzzle that oxen because that oxen isn't going to get fat off of his grain, right? And so even though it was doing him a service. And so Paul is going to tell the Corinthians as he quotes it again, not only to Timothy, he quotes it to the Corinthians in chapter 9, and he's going to tell them, does God care so much about animals, or do you think that that was for us? And he said, that was for us. He's saying that, let the hardworking ox of a pastor who, who treads on the, the, the word of God over and over and over again and crushes it down and, and separates the husk from the, the kernel and so that people can make bread and bake that bread up and serve the bread of life to people. Uh, isn't it, doesn't it make sense that he should profit from his labors? This is what the Bible is teaching. To be really blunt about it, verse 6 says, according to the commentators, pay 
the pastor. Uh, now they, they're, they're using, oh, they, they're, uh, we could go back to the text. He says, share. It's so much less brutal than the word pay, um, but it is share with him. Take care of him. Now, I mean, the Galatians have a lifeline. They have false teachers coming in. They're about to shipwreck their faith. They need gospel preachers in Galatia. And the only way to do that is to take care of them so that they could do their job. So he's saying it's an investment in your own uh, spiritual uh, well-being is to take care of that man. Now, he says uh, there... Uh, the principle he's going on. And by the way, where did, we, where did he get the second quotation? The workman is worthy of his hire. He's quoting the Lord Jesus Christ who told his disciples, go out, don't worry about getting a part-time job at Home Depot. I want you to go out and I want you to bring the gospel to every little village. Because yeah, don't worry about money because the worker is worthy of his wages. He's saying from God's point of view, preaching, the call of preaching and pastoring is a vocation. S services are being rendered. And so he says the worker is worthy of his wages. It just means those who work deserve their pay. So God is just saying, God, God is saying, I consider pastoring a vocation for which adequate compensation is fitting. And so uh, one one writer's quote here, and then we'll move on. Um, and it's a stinger. Men don't think of getting something for nothing when dining in restaurants, visiting doctor's offices, or attending university. They gladly compensate for such services rendered. But sadly, that same attitude can be absent in the pews, this is why the scriptures must frequently speak to the dignity and value of the minister's work and remind those who benefit spiritually of their ethical and common sense obligation to contribute to the work that's prospering their own souls and benefiting them in this life and in the life to come. So here's what he's saying. Anyone, if you're receiving instruction in the word of God, and your lives are being blessed, doesn't it make sense that you want to keep that channel open? And the way you do that is make sure that you're giving to the work of the Lord because you're receiving. And I had a pastor once who used to say to the church, he said, don't park on somebody else's dime. Now, it was a long time ago when people put coins in parking meters Okay, so what it is is the person who circles and circles around and, and somebody had just pulled out and, and they had paid, you know, there was a dime left on, on the meter, right? Oh, yes, I'm going to park in there on somebody else's dime. And so, yes, Jesus, our Lord and Savior says, it is every Christian's responsibility if you've ever received from a ministry that you are obligated to give. And there are a lot of Christians who give more to Starbucks than to the work of the Lord. If you have two lattes a week for a year, you're talking almost a thousand dollars. Okay, if they're, you know, venti lattes with an extra shot. 
I, for one, do not want to get to heaven and hear somebody say, you know, you gave more to Pete's or you, you, bought, you, you spent more on shirts or on golf clubs or on vacations or on your remodel. All of these things are cool. Just make sure that number one, you're supporting the work of the Lord. Where you're getting fed, then you have an obligation. Amen? Amen. Now, let me say this. This church rocks. This church gets it. You guys, I'm preaching to the choir. I'm preaching to people who come out on a Wednesday night for a midweek Bible study. Come on. You get it, right? So share with anybody who doesn't get it. All right, so he says, if you're receiving, you should be for the sake of those serving you, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the well-being of the church, and for the sake of your own blessing. Look at the paragraph. How many times have you heard seven and eight quoted without six? This is a package deal. The primary context of sowing and reaping in this case Here, let me read seven. Do not be deceived. He's just said, anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Don't be deceived. Same thought. He he didn't go anywhere. God can't be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. And one who sows to please the spirit, from the spirit he will reap eternal life. Obviously, seven and eight. The consequences now in investing or neglecting in the work of the Lord. This is the context of those famous uh, verses there. Now, one person, one commentator put it this way. These verses, verse 7 and 8, regarding sowing to the spirit or sowing to the flesh, a.k.a. the sinful nature, are well known but not well understood. Verses Though they have a broader application, they are first and foremost about supporting the work of the Lord and all that means. Verse living for oneself with no investment, no effort, no beyond what I can see and touch mentality. So David Guzik put it this way about this this paragraph. For those who are hesitant to support the ministry that teaches them the word of God, Paul reminds them of God's principle of sowing and reaping. Their giving isn't like throwing away money. It is like planting seeds, and whatever man sows, that will he also reap. So he uses uh, the metaphor of sowing and reaping when talking about supporting the work of the Lord because it's so hard. It's hard to let go of money. It's hard to let go of money when you don't have an immediate thing right there. You just, you know, you do the thing and you put it in there and you don't see anything right away. We want to sow and reap in the same day. Doesn't always happen that way. And so sowing is a great illustration because you have to let it go. You don't know where it is. You can't see it. You don't have an immediate gratification. You have an immediate debit. That's why it's so hard to give because you get you just have an immediate debit, but with time, the credit appears. And it's usually greater than the thing that you've sowed, and this is his point here. Now, I mean, if you take an apple seed and you sow that one apple seed, 
you could grow a tree, right? And then on a tree, an average of 80 apples in a season, each apple has about, well, they have about 10 seeds in each apple. And so you've got 800 seeds from that one seed a year. And an apple tree lives for 75 years. So 75 times 800 is 60,000 seeds in that one seed that was sown. If you think it's a big deal with apple seeds, trust me, when you sow love and kindness in the face of hate, when you sow the word of God, a John 3.16 into somebody's heart and they get saved, and then they're preaching the gospel, wait until you get to heaven, wait until you get to heaven. You will not believe what has come up from a little seed here and a little seed there. And when I'm talking about seed here, yes, the context is finances and investing in God's work, right? But it goes so much bigger than that, of course. When we're talking about sowing spiritual seed, we mean investing all of our lives in the work of the Lord. Supporting the church, yes. Uh, loving one another, praying, worshiping, attending services, building up people, carrying one another's burdens, making peace, promoting unity, forgiving, exhorting, admonishing, strengthening, and encouraging, doing God's will, being an example to others about godly living and wise choices, mentoring others, sharing the gospel. So when we're talking sowing seeds, please don't just think offering. It's our lives. It's everything I just mentioned. And he says, that's the thing. When you live that kind of life, there's going to come a harvest. And it's hard sometimes. One writer said this, dear Christian reader, about sowing and reaping financially. Dear Christian reader, let not your heart become callous to the truth of God, though evil men have distorted and perverted God's word for abusive self-gain. Such men will, duly be, will be punished duly for their evil deeds, but you and I must trust God's word, obey, and reap the harvest of his good blessing by sowing our lives into the kingdom of God. And we don't work to get. We work in hope that God rewards us as we invest our lives in his cause. There's nothing wrong with that. Now he says God cannot be mocked. He's saying, listen, those of you who think this is a joke, that God just makes promises and doesn't keep them when he says given, it'll be given to you. God cannot be mocked. The word there is associated with to turn the nose up, to do this to God. You can't say, listen, you know, I'm getting away with murder. I never give to the church and look at how blessed I am. He says, oh, no, no, no. Appearances can be very deceiving. And so he, uh, the idea here is you will get back what you put in. And the idea is God cannot be mocked. In other words, you can't ignore the teachings of Christ, which said, if you hear my word, Matthew chapter seven, if you hear my word and you don't put 
my words into practice, you'll build your house on the sand. And so appearances can be deceiving. It looks like a big house. It looks like a nice house. Inside, there's lots of treasures. But the wind and the, and the storms and the rain come and beat against that house. He says that, that's what he's saying. God will not be mocked. And so how often we see it in the world of celebrities and in the world of people that, that walk away from God and it looks okay for a while and then there's the massive implosion. This is what he's saying. God will not be mocked. It is just how he says, so sparingly, reap sparingly, so generously, reap generously. And as I said in Luke chapter six and verse 38, Jesus said, give and it will be given to you. He just keeps it promise. Let me paraphrase verse 8 for you. So you're looking at 8, right? The one who lives only for his own selfish ambition reaps the whirlwind. Counterproductive, destructive in nature. To live for yourself and invest in only you, 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 you. That's all you ever think about. He says, that's destructive. That's not going to, you're investing in yourself. That doesn't work because there's a God and he has a purpose outside of your life. And, and then he goes on. I'll paraphrase the second part. The one who lives for Christ, who seeks first the kingdom of God to please the spirit, reaps eternal blessings from that spirit, reaps life. That is truly life called eternal life there. Life that is truly life. I really like that. It's in First uh, Timothy chapter uh, 6, that phrase. And so the, the, he, he's saying, listen, those who lose their life for my sake find themselves. Those who are about investing their words and their energy, those who have to, what, deny self, pick up cross and follow every day, every day to tell yourself no. That sinful nature says, I want this, and uh, they didn't do me right here, and, and you know, I'm going to cut some corners here. Every day you sow, it's hard work. He says, you're going to have a blessing by doing the hard work. Just don't give up. And I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So uh, to sow to the spirit, that's so, so to the sinful nature, that's obvious. I don't even have to tell you how to do that, right? Sadly, <laughs> acting on sinful impulses, uh, revenge, uh, getting even with people, spending your money on you, 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 uh, not serving, not helping, not sharing the gospel. <laughs> I don't know why I keep thinking about this, and I'm just going to share it. I was getting my blood work done. I was sitting next to a lady, and I said, "What? what's going on with you? She goes, I got leukemia. I've got a few months to live. I got a, bla- a brain tumor. Older woman, older than me, and using all kinds of profanity, unbelievable. And I just thought, oh, my word. And my mind is racing inside. Oh, God, give me something to say to this woman. And I just kind of interrupted the slew of all kinds of craziness. And it's a small room, and there must have been 15 people listening gladly. I was so happy. That <laughs> <clears throat> and I just had a chance to to share with her. And I said, so, you know, are you ready for death? Are you ready for death? And, and she said, of course, I'm going to heaven with my mom and my dad. And I said, how do you know that? How do you know that? String of obscenities, not mad at me, just that's how she talks, right? 
I said, you're going to go into eternity soon. You've got to you have Jesus. He died on the cross for you. Just all sowing, sowing, thinking about other people. I'm responsible for somebody sitting next to me who's dying. And that somebody who's sitting next to you. God just expects us to be sowing our lives every day. And it's not just about writing a check. It's about sowing our lives in this way. And he says, as you lose your life and make it about the person sitting next to you, may be an eternity in two months in a Christless forever. And I was this close to her. Oh, I want to say something. And she walked out the door and I said, take Jesus with you. And everybody looked away as if they didn't hear anything. Like, okay. All right. We've got to move on, people. Nine through ten are right there. The greatest hindrance to sowing to the spirit is that we want to give up because it's hard. So he says, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we'll receive a harvest. If we don't give up, the word there is to faint to have fainting spells, to have moral lapses, you know. I just can't wait so long and nothing's happening and so I'm going to, you know, take a break and do my own thing. So, verse 9. Christian living can be hard work. It's digging and planting and cultivating and watering, right? And uh, maybe four months before you see anything. And that's the harvest. But in our lives, It's sometimes a lot more than four months. Think of Karen Mitchell, married to Roy. Roy is the most spirit-filled man in this church, constantly bringing people to the Lord, constantly edifying all of us here. We all love that man, but for more than two decades, his wife prayed and prayed and prayed and waited and waited and waited and nothing but looking just like it got worse. And then suddenly the lights came on. The harvest was there because she was sowing and sowing and sowing. And she didn't give up. She didn't grow weary. Of course he has to say, you're going to reap a harvest. If you plant, don't worry. Don't get discouraged. It's going to come. He has to say that because we get so distracted. He needs to say, here's what he's saying. Hang in there. It's going to happen. You know, yes, the Christian life is hard at times, right? It's easier to lay on the couch instead of doing the work in the fields to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow. Listen, downhill, coasting downhill, that's easy. That's why uh, the majority of the world is perishing. Wide is the way that leads to destruction. It's downhill. It's according to your sinful nature. Your sinful nature says, me want this. And then you give it. What's hard about that? The hard thing is sowing to the spirit against our natural inclinations. To be other-centered. To be tolerant. To overlook offenses. To forgive people. To lead with mercy. To give away ourselves and our resources to the work of God. He says, it's hard work. That's why he says, don't get weary and don't have a fainting spell. 
He's saying, and commentators say, he's including himself there. He goes to first person, let us, Paul included. Because what? He's sowing into these Galatians' lives. Month after month, year after year, he's hearing them talk about, we want to become Jewish like you, Pastor Paul. He's sowing and sowing and watering and nurturing all of the churches. And he's saying, let us not grow weary. Let's keep on doing the right thing. Listen, when people don't see results, they get a little crazy. You remember the Jewish people at the base of Mount Sinai. What's keeping them so long up there? Let's throw ourselves a little party and let's make some golden calves and brew a little beer and let's do a little dancing so they have a drunken festival worshiping the gods that their hands created. Why? Because it was taking a little bit of time. My word, I think God allows time delays to happen to test the heart of his people. He tests us. What's really in there? Well, I'm going to add another month or another year. And then we find out, oh, that's what's really in there. A golden calf and drunken immorality. So he says, don't do that. Just, just be patient. If it's two years, if it's 20 years, or, or you don't get it until you see him face to face, and then he gives it to you. It'll be worth it, he says. So verse 10, be like Jesus. Go about doing good. Relieve people's burdens. Touch their lives. Be a blessing as God gives you opportunity. Let's finish up. There's another paragraph. It looks big. Don't worry. It's not as big and bad as it may appear. He's closing up now. This is the end of Galatians. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. Those false teachers came in to the Gentiles and Christians and said, how nice, but unless you're circumcised, you will not go to heaven. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. The only reason they do this, these false teachers, is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. I'll explain that. Verse 13. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your conversion. Verse 14, to Judaism. Verse 14, may I never boast, may I never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is being born again a new creation, the new birth. Verse 16, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Finally, let no one, no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus, the stigmata in the Greek. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers, amen. And with that, the book of Galatians comes to a close we're taking a look now from sowing seed to discerning the truth and avoiding the snare of false teachers. That's what he's just going to recapitulate a little bit of what he's been saying. So the summary of the letter 
which is the whole purpose. Paul picks up the pen there in verse 11, and he takes it away from his amanuensis. A-M-A-N-U-E-N-S-I-S is somebody who takes dictation. It's like a private secretary, and so Paul used these guys. And so he picks up the pen to summarize the letter, and he points out what large letters he's using while writing. Now, commentators say, well, this probably means one of three things. One, that he's saying, I really care about you guys. Look at how long the letters are. Number two, it could mean the actual size of the letters, which I think it does mean that Paul had said in chapter four that he has eye problems, that they would have ripped out their own eyes and given them to him. And commentators believe that maybe a very hideous eye disease, ugly and oozing and blinding him was his thorn in the flesh. This is a theory that's very common out there. So he's saying, look at the ridiculous way I have to write in these large letters in order for me to see what I'm writing. And number three, to authenticate that the letter comes from him because <clears throat> there were forgeries in the name of Paul. And 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2 actually mentions that the Thessalonians got a couple of those forged letters that he, Paul had to denounce. So now he's just going to expose the false teachers one more time, one parting shot on the way out with these heretics um, there and uh, these Judaizers who want to make everybody Jewish. That's what the word Judaizer means. And um, so he's saying, they say you must be circumcised. He says, listen, here's, here's why they're doing that, to avoid being persecuted. Again, if you're just joining us, the Old Testament was huge on circumcision because circumcision was a sign after Abraham got saved by faith and was reconciled to God, God gave him the sign of circumcision to say, you must be born again. If you're born the natural way of human reproduction, you will die and you will perish. You have to have God's intervention. You must be born again. That's what the sign of circumcision means. When Christ came and the Holy Spirit came into our hearts, he circumcised our hearts and the outward sign of of, of Christian conversion is baptism. And it's saying the same thing. I had to be raised from the dead. God had to intervene. I could not raise myself to new life. And so these guys were coming around and saying, unless you have the sign, the mark, you guys are going straight to hell. And so um, he said, the reason they're doing that is to avoid being persecuted. What does that mean? Well, they're Jews. Israel was really offended by Christianity because Jesus said, listen, Judaism is like an old tattered garment. You can't patch it up. It's like an old stretched out wineskin. It did its job. It produced Messiah. It pointed to me. Here I am. I'll take it from here. We don't need Judaism anymore. And that really offended the Jews and even the Jewish Christians had a longing to hold on to Jewish traditions and, and see that the Gentiles who were just getting saved, just saying, oh, I believe in Jesus, and then they got everything for nothing. 
no keeping the law, no Shabbat, no Sabbath, no, uh, they could eat whatever they want, and they were kind of offended at this. So when Paul was preaching that all you needed to do was get saved and look to the cross, they were saying, oh no, the cross plus circumcision plus no, no uh, keeping a kosher table. Why? So then the Jews accepted them and said, oh, you don't hate Moses. You're still a good patriot. patriot. You're still a good Hebrew. See, so they walked around saying, yes, I've got Jesus, but unless they're circumcised, they're not going to heaven. And the reason they did it, Paul said, is to not take any heat from their Jewish uh, colleagues, their Jewish friends and family. It's the same today. Because Paul would just preach the, the, the preaching of the cross, which says what? You're a sinner, you're helpless, you can't do anything, you can't be saved unless Christ died for you. Nothing you do, no Jewish laws, no rituals, no circumcision, nothing but the cross. So that was the offense that made everybody crazy that he said, it's the cross, not Moses, not the Ten Commandments. You'll keep the Ten Commandments when the Holy Spirit comes in you through the death and resurrection of the cross of Christ. And even today, they throw out, it's the same thing 2,000 years later. 2,000 years later, what do they do? They have changed the gospel to avoid being persecuted for the cross. It's the same thing. The cross says what? You're going to hell unless you repent. That you need a new birth. And so the new gospel is, oh, just come as you are. God just loves you the way you are. You don't have to change. You can identify as anything you want and, 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 and all are welcome here and all are welcome. But to receive the Holy Spirit through repentance from sin, through lifestyles that God condemns as wrong. And so the new gospel is solely the same thing to avoid being persecuted. So they say, oh, I'm not like those narrow-minded, hate-monging Christians. I'm enlightened. There's no such thing as hell. How could a God of, of love? And so, so they get rid of the hell. They get rid of the, the uh, sexual immorality clauses and the repentance clauses, and they preach a whole nother gospel. Why? To save their own hides and their reputation so that they can have the applause of people instead of the approval of God. I'll tell you what. The cross, he says, they want to boast. Look at your text. What they boast in is your flesh, meaning you're like trophies, they, they boast in their converts. He says, I boast in my Christ and the cross. And he says, the cross is what God appeared in a man's body. God on a cross, stripped and flogged. God who spoke and the universe leapt into existence. God on a cross causes me to be crucified to the world and the world crucified to me. In other words, if that's God on a cross dying that shameful death for me and for the sins of the world, it puts to death any desire I have for anything in the world, 
and it breaks the spell of this world over me, trying to conform me into any, any image that it has for my life. Do you see? That's exactly what it means. Because God is on a cross bleeding out for the sins of people, then nothing else matters. That's what that verse means. Crucified to the world and the world crucified to me means what else matters? If that is God on the cross gasping for air, dying for my sins, what do I got in this world? What do I got to do? What are my ambitions in life? It should all revolve around him. My own sinful heart wants to master me. Sorry, God on a cross, dying for my sins. The world wants to tell me and allure me and go over here and do this and you need to arrive and get this and be that. Sorry, God on a cross for my sins. Changes everything. Shuts the door there, shuts the door there and focuses me on the thing that matters, Christ and him crucified raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, given by the Holy Spirit into our hearts to raise us up to what? To be servants of the Lord, to do his will, to be loving like him, to shine our lights all over the place. This is what he's saying. This life is no longer mine with Christ on the cross as God shedding his blood for me, he goes on to say, just another parting shot. He says, hey, if you want to boast, they're boasting in their converts. I'll boast in that that was God on the cross for me. That's enough for me to boast about. And then he says in verse 15, a mark on the body means nothing. It means nothing. What counts is being born again. And when I get into conversations with these people in labs and in hospitals and in Trader Joe's, I just get, they give me all of this nonsense, cut to the chase, are you born again? Jesus said, well, you know, they'll tell me all these stories and I do this and I go here and I'm a member here and I'll, are you born again? Because that's, Jesus said, if you're not born again, you're not going to make it. Just cut right to the chase. He says, nothing matters, the mark or no mark, Uh, church or no church. Tithing or no tithing, nothing matters except one thing. Are you born again? Do you have new life? Have you been reconciled to God? Nothing else matters than that. And then he says, finally, everybody just back off because I bear in my body the scars of Jesus. What does he mean by that? Well, 2 Corinthians 11, we got a, a list of ways he was flogged Five times. Three times beat with rods. It was a discipline the Romans had down. They took rods and they just clubbed you over. Three different times. And he was, uh, he had the marks of being persecuted. And he says, the, the, the wounds and the scars of loving Jesus and identifying with him and taking a stand for Christ and the wounds and the persecution that that puts in our lives are honorable things that speak in better ways than us saying, oh, I've been a Christian for 20 years or I went to this Christian school. What really matters, he says, is uh, you know, no need to question his apostolic authority or his godliness. He says, you want to see? Look at my back. 
And that's because I don't say, oh, it's okay. Everybody need to be circumcised and keep the Sabbath too if you want to, to avoid that. Instead, he said, nothing matters except the cross and you are a sinner and you will repent and you will die and you will be cast in the lake of fire forever unless you repent. And they said, well, flog him. We're tired of hearing that. And he says, I am honored to bear the scars that I got sticking close to Jesus. Jesus got scars. I got scars. We share them together. And my scars from ministry and your scars from ministry and standing, your crosses and your losses and your chopped off hands and your gouged out eye and your amputated foot that would have caused you to sin that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, amputated away, those things are beautiful things. They're the wounds. They're the marks of Jesus. Oh, that's a whole better way of thinking about what I've lost in my sinful life and lamenting what I can't do anymore. No, I've got a limp. I've got some scars. I've taken some hits because I stand up and say that people will go to hell. Well, people left the church because I talk about hell. That, that was a wound. That was a friend of mine. But I bear that wound. Look at that wound. It hurts. But it's honorable. And it draws me into the intimacy of Christ's sufferings. I share them with him. And that makes all the difference. Let's pray together. Father God, I just thank you for being here and speaking so clearly to our hearts about getting serious, God. 100%, God, all the way. You were 100% for us. You are 100% for us today. You treat us better than we deserve. Let us respond in like manner to worship you with our lives. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.